Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I want to fill you in on a, a couple of things. Um, this is the last week for the generosity bucket donations that will go to the Caring Center to provide Thanksgiving meals for families in Boone County. And so for the last three weeks, anything that you've put in the generosity buckets, which is above and beyond our tithes and offerings, uh, we just put whatever we have with us in those buckets. Everything's going to go to the Caring Center that was raised these three weeks to provide Thanksgiving meals. And so just a reminder for that. Uh, in addition, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Christmas is coming, um, right? And uh, I'm not even going to ask if you've already bought gifts. That's ridiculous. Um, but uh, as we gear up for Christmas each year, we get excited as a church to bless the community that way as well. So we have a couple of opportunities to make you aware of. We do what's called a giving tree here at New Hope. And so there'll be some Christmas trees. You'll see one next Sunday as like a teaser, just so you know where to look the following Sunday. But beginning the 5th of December, we'll allow you to start taking tags off those trees. And they will go to the Boone County Mentoring Partnership, buying gifts for the mentees, uh, Christmas gifts. Or the Caring Center, buying meals, and there's some needs right here in our church family uh, that you can meet with some of the tags there. In addition to that, we'll have care packages underneath the Christmas tree that you can grab, and we are being asked to mail them out. We did this last year for uh, a lot of the, the soldiers and, and first responders, people that are going to be away from home. These are care packages that have already been packed. You pick one up, you go to the post office, pay for shipping, and you ship off a Christmas care package uh, to first responders and soldiers uh, all around the, uh, the world, I think. So uh, just excited for that uh, opportunity for us to be generous that way as well. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us as we are into the second to last week of our series in First and Second Corinthians. And then in December, we're going to do a short little series leading into Christmas before we start Ephesians next year. Uh, so we're getting excited for all of that. But let's pray to get today and we'll jump into Second Corinthians 11. Father, thank you for this church. And the gathering that we get to enjoy together, coming together with a variety of experiences, some of us coming off of great joys, uh, like Sonia with the baptism, and some of us coming off of difficulty, like many people in our church, carrying weight, uh, emotional, and just difficulty, uncertainty. And we gather together with all of these experiences from multiple backgrounds to bring all of our attention and our affection to Jesus. So as we open your word this morning, our prayer is simple. Would you speak to us wherever we are? And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2005, a uh, novelist David Wallace gave what's become a pretty iconic commencement speech to the graduating class at Kenyon College. Uh, the speech is oftentimes called, uh, This is Water. And it's about the difficulty of paying attention to the needs of the people around you in the everyday grind of your own life, meaning we are so distracted by everything around us that it's not even, it doesn't even feel like a distraction. It numbs us to the very understanding of the needs of the people around us. And to open that speech, he gave this illustration. So there's these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on a bit, and eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, wait, what is water? You see, his point is that they didn't even recognize everything around them has become so normal, they don't understand it. They can't pay attention to anything because it's just become kind of numb to them. We have this call that's placed on our lives as apprentices or disciples of Jesus 
to pay attention to the needs of others. But it's not just about paying attention. We're actually called to put the interests of other people over and above our own. I mean, Paul makes this clear in multiple letters. We'll look later at Philippians, but in Romans chapter 12, he says, honor one another, honor others over and above yourself. It's a pretty powerful word, honor. Honor other people more than you honor yourself. So this is like this call to pay attention to, but we are up against an obstacle, and mainly every single thing in our world, in our culture, is geared toward preventing us from doing that. Because everything that's going on around us is all about us. Everything, for everything that's marketed, our default is to swim with the current of the culture that is consistently telling us to become better versions of ourselves. Just focus on you, get better at being you. And what it doesn't do is give us the ability to display true biblical humility or empathy toward the needs of other people. So the way I see it, there's two problems. There's this obstacle, but there's really two problems. One is really the world around us. I mean, everything that you see is marketed toward you. Think about it. Even opportunities for you to go and be about other people come with a guarantee that you're going to become a better person for doing it. Very little have you been called to go and do culturally, marketing-wise, to invest your lives in the lives of somebody else with little to no return back to you. Because they know in order to get people to come and serve, we have to give them some sort of a guarantee that this is what's good for them, that they're going to become better people if they just participate in this. And that becomes the way that we market in our culture, even the idea of sacrifice. And so we have this problem of a deceptive world that we live in telling us to self-sacrifice. If you will self-sacrificially give, but then at the same time telling us that we're going to become better people for doing it, therefore removing any idea of true self-sacrifice in the act of giving. I hope you can read my cynicism here. But we have another problem that we're up against. So not just the current of the culture that's pushing us toward making ourselves a better version of ourselves in everything that we do. I mean, think about everything that you're exposed to is about making you better. If you could buy that thing, you're going to be happier. If you would just go get that one thing or meet that goal or move into that house or, or get that job or become friends with that person or just whatever it is, it's all about making you feel more complete and better, therefore making you a better version of yourself. But we have another problem when it comes to following Jesus. And being disciples or apprentices of the way of Jesus, we have this other issue, not just the current of the culture around us. You know what that other problem is? It's you. You're the other problem. It's me. When it comes to my discipleship to Jesus, I am my biggest problem. I am my biggest problem. There is this desire for self that has to be put to death if I'm going to truly live the way that Jesus has called us to live. Think about it. We are experts at taking things, even good things. We are experts at this. We can take even good things and we can add them to the recipe of project self-improvement. We do it all the time. So we have this culture that tells us to make everything about us, even subtly and creatively, and they do a good job of it. This isn't like done poorly. I mean, we eat it up. There's literally algorithms that tug on your desire to make yourself better. Like they, they're writing algorithms to get you to think about you. That's the world that we live in. We are, that's what we have. But then we have this heart that's inside of us that desires what's best for us as well. And everything that's around us, we want to make it all about us. Even the idea of serving. This is why when we serve, we sure do like to tell people we're doing it. 
This is why when we do an act of kindness, it's a well-marketed, publicized, Instagram-pictured act of kindness. It's a well-written story. It's me being creative. We do everything we can, and there's nothing wrong with it. We're taking good things. It doesn't negate the fact that what you're doing is good, but it does call into question the condition of the heart that continually needs to add to what I'll call today continually project self-improvement. This is what Paul's up against when he's writing this letter. If you've been with us, you know that the bulk of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, is trying to defend his authority as an apostle, one set aside to speak on behalf of God. And the problem he's up against, he'll identify them in the first part of chapter 11 as super apostles. That's another way of just saying there's these guys that have come in and they're really talented. I mean, they are skilled. They are, they are using their oratory skill to wow a crowd. Think about in our day, this is high production, high giftedness. This is really, really talented, gifted person who can get up and get you on the edge of your seat. You're like putty in their hands. And these guys come into the church and they begin to teach certain things and do certain things. And they're getting so good that they're actually charging those who are listening to them to come and listen to them. And what they're doing is they're beginning to, to get them to think different about the Apostle Paul. This is why Paul's having to defend himself constantly. They're saying things like, man, if Paul was really called by God, don't you think the favor of God would be on him? Shouldn't his ministry be bigger and better? Or Paul continually admitting his own faults to the Corinthians, saying, I'm not a good speaker. When I get up, I stumble over my words. I stutter. I'm not the most talented orator. And so these super apostles, they take advantage of it. Why? Because they're serving themselves. They're given into the culture current of the day in Corinth, as well as the desire of their own heart to continually just get everything for them. And they take advantage of this and they say, well, if Paul was really called by God, don't you think God speaks a little more clearly than Paul? Don't you think he should be better at what he does? And on top of that, they're charging money. Now they're charging people and they're saying, oh, yeah, you know what? If you want to hear from us, you got to come and you got to pay here. Don't you deserve a ministry where when you show up, you actually get to feel like you're being fed? Don't you deserve to sit in a room where you're just being inspired to become the best version of yourself? Don't you deserve to be in a ministry where when we're teaching you, you feel called and you feel like you have everything you need to become the best you that you can be? For the life of me, I can't think of a world where that might continue to be a problem. So the Apostle Paul is going to start speaking into this pretty directly. He gets pretty firm with them. But man, he reveals his heart. This is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Uh, so I'm really excited. Let's just jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12. Paul says this. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things that they boast about. So what he's saying is I'm not going to stop coming after what these guys are teaching. Now, notice that he says, my goal is to cut the ground out from under them. He's not trying to destroy their souls. He is warning them against the destruction of their souls, but it's not his job to come after their soul. He's going to destroy their bad teaching and their bad ideas. He's going to cut the ground out from under them and no longer give them the platform that they have. He's going to be firm with them. Verse 13, for such people, the people, these super apostles that are teaching this stuff, they're false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And it's no wonder, like, this isn't a surprise to me, because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Don't let it be lost on you as we're reading this. For Paul to take the time to compare what somebody's doing to the work of Satan is no light matter. He didn't just toss that around all the time. 
So he's actually evaluated what these guys are doing, what they're teaching, what their motives are, what their end goal is. And he's saying, you're working for Satan, not for God. The things that you're teaching, you're, just, you're a tool in the hands of the enemy. That's a big deal. This isn't like Paul saying, hey, guys, I know they're gifted, but I kind of disagree with a couple things that they're saying. Maybe you should be careful about it. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, uh, hey, I know that we are preaching very similar messages here. We just don't do ministry the same way. And so we're going to go do our ministry separate, even though we find agreement on what we're teaching. Guys, I just, I can't get along with these super apostles. Now, Paul's had that. When? You remember this? Paul and Barnabas? Like, hey, everything Barnabas is saying is good. Everything he's, but when it comes to whether or not to bring John Mark on this trip with us, I just can't see eye to eye with you. So you go do ministry. I'll go do ministry. I'm rooting for you. I'm going this way. That's fine. We're upset with each other. We can't work together, but we don't disagree on the content of what's being said. See, this is different. Now Paul's coming to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, if you listen to these guys, you're being taught by Satan. So it's not so much that I don't like the way they're doing things. It's you need to watch out for the very things that these guys are saying because it's going to lead you astray. Here's what I love about it. Here's what I love about this. When you read the, the life of the Apostle Paul through the pages of the letters that he wrote to these churches, very few things burn Paul up like the people he loved being deceived. Very few things got him riled up like someone he cared for and loved being duped and deceived by false teaching. I mean, it got him fired up. Why? Because he loved these people. He loved them. So he's making this attempt to tell the church, wake up, guys, pay attention. I love you. I don't want this to happen to you. And you have to pay attention to what's going on here. And in verse 15, he says, if you're not careful, you're going to get what they're getting. Verse 15, he says, watch out because they're going to get what they deserve. They're teaching all this horrible stuff and they're making everything about themselves. They're giving into the current of the culture and they're making everything about having their best life now. And they're claiming that the favor of God's on them. But here's the thing about God. This is what Paul says. It's what he's saying in verse 15. God won't be mocked. What they're going to get is what they're doing deserves. They're going to get what they deserve. In other words, he's saying, man, if you're going to mess with the bride, watch out for the groom. Because he's coming. You don't want to be caught messing with his bride. And that's what he's warning them. They just... And now the church is listening to this teaching and they're just giving in. They're just making everything about themselves. It, it lines up perfectly with what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. See, if all you're doing is looking down on others and trying to make yourself feel better, he's saying you can't see what God's doing around you. You're oblivious to it. You have to look up. It also lines up with the words of A.W. Tozer, who said this really uh, important truth. He said this, the most important thing about a man is what comes to his mind when he thinks about God. But what Paul's warning the church with here with these super apostles is you don't, you don't even have the capacity to think about God. So the most important thing to you is what the culture's telling you. And this is what the culture we find ourselves in today, too. We have our two issues here, very similar to this church. We have a culture that's all around us, and they do a wonderful, marvelous job at telling us that it's really about us. And then we have this desire in ourselves that is constantly being fed by everything around us. It's the water around us, very much like the fish in that opening illustration. It's just everything that's around. I don't even notice. It's just the life around me is telling me to be a better me, and so I'm just going to keep feeding that, making things all about myself. And Paul is saying, when that happens, you can't think about God. So the culture is telling you the most important thing about you is what you think about yourself. 
That's what's most important about you. What do you think about you? I'm not saying it's not important, and Paul would never say to neglect yourself. But Paul doesn't compromise in saying that the interests of other people are more important than your own. And so now he's going to get a little bit more firm. And he's going to do something that's slightly out of character for him. He's going to start to compare himself to these super apostles. And he's going to kind of give his credentials, but not in a way that's prideful, in a way that's pleading. And let's see how he does that. Verse 22. Talking about these super apostles, he says this. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers." I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides all of this, I face the daily pressure of my deep concern for the churches. It's a pretty fascinating way to to list out your credentials, in my opinion. You're kind of feeding into the argument of the super apostles. Paul's life hasn't been easy, right? If God was really with him, shouldn't the favor of God be on him? Like, what do you guys... You should listen to us because look at our life. We're wealthy and we're comfortable. Things are good. If you, if you do what we're doing, you're going to be all right. Look at what he's doing. And Paul lists these things. And he gets pretty firm here. He says, look, are they Bible experts? <laughs> look at me. I've, he memorized the whole Bible at the time. So they're experts. I've memorized it all. Oh, they want to talk about the knowledge that they have of Jesus? I've literally spent time with the risen Jesus. And then on top of it, he says, and they're charging you. I never once took money from you when I did my ministry with you. In fact, I went out of my way. This is what Paul writes in the beginning part of chapter 11. I went out of my way to make sure that money was taken care of so I never had to charge you because the message of the gospel was not about me making money, but it sure is for them. See, what's fascinating, D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, points this out. If Paul really wanted to brag and be arrogant, here's what he would have said. I've established more churches. I've preached the gospel in more lands to more ethnic groups. I've traveled more miles. I've won more converts. I've written more books. I've raised more money. I've dominated more councils. I've walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I've commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles you've ever seen. Bring it. But he didn't. That's not what he said. Instead, Paul says, yeah, my life's been hard. And I've suffered. And I've had really, really difficult seasons of my life. Yeah, that's absolutely true of me. But it was all for your sake. Here's the most convicting part of this whole chapter to me. It's a chapter, it's a, it's, there's this verse that's in there that has stuck with me my entire ministry. And I, I've never been able to shake it. It's been extremely convicting to me. And, and, and it's found right there at the end in verse 28. I mean, Paul says, I've gone through all these things, but the thing that matters most, the thing that weighs heaviest on me, the reason I lose sleep at night is because I'm always thinking about you. I'm always concerned with what's best for you. It's never about me. It's always about your needs. Like, I just think, what do you need to grow? And why are you being deceived? He's just always focused on the daily pressure of all of these Christians. I just want them to mature and grow in Christ. That's ministry. That's what it should be. Ministry should never be this performance where you sit on a stage and you watch a bunch of people make you feel better about yourself. 
The church is a place where you come and you're known and you're taken care of and people are intimately involved in your life and people can say, I've lost sleep thinking about you. Can I just be honest with you? There's two people that I love dearly in this church that are battling uncertainty right now over something and I've lost sleep the last two nights thinking about them because I love them and I hate that they're hurting. This is not about a platform or a brand or production or do everything fancy and perfectly and entertain the masses. We can't do that because the Apostle Paul is telling us right here, it is about hurting for your people, caring for one another, being intimately involved in their lives. I love the way that Eugene Peterson said this in his memoir, Pastor. He said, we pastors are at our very best when we go unnoticed. We're at our very best when we go unnoticed. I would say amen to that, but I would add to it. We Christians, we Jesus followers, we're at our very best when we go unnoticed because we're just there to care about other people. It's all about taking care of the needs of others. Dr. Margaret Mead, she's a famous lecturer at Harvard. And she was asked one time by one of her PhD students, she said, they said, Dr. Mead, what, what is the first sign of civilization that archaeologists or anthropologists that have found? What, what's the first sign of it? And the whole class thought that she was going to say, you know, like a wagon wheel or some sort of a fish hook, something that showed ingenuity and development. And much to their whole, everyone's surprise, her response was this. She said, actually, the first sign of civilization was a healed femur bone. Because someone had to care enough about that injured person to do their work for them. In other words, when your needs become my priority, and when my needs become your priority, we are finally swimming against the current of our culture. And I don't know about you, but I read this. I read the heart of Paul, and I'm like, I want my heart to be a little more like that than it is. Man, I just want to stop thinking of myself so much always looking for that selfish advantage. And think about it, man. This wasn't even Paul's message just to the Corinthians. I mean, this is his message across the board. My favorite is his message to the church at Philippi. My wife and I took a class in seminary together. It's the only class we got to take together, and we spent a lot of time studying this book, so there's like sentimentality to it too. But I love the message of Philippians. It's really actually found in Acts chapter 16. The apostle Paul comes to this town and he plants this church in this Roman province named Philippi. And, and the reason it's important to know it's a Roman province, like most of the people that lived in Philippi were retired Roman soldiers. And in Rome, your citizenship to Rome meant so much. And so Paul plants this church and things are going really well. And then people didn't like it. Surprise. And so they're going to beat him. Surprise. And so they grab him and Silas and they beat him with an inch of their life. And don't let it be lost on you. Think about the beating, open wounds all over his body, the kind of wounds that leave scars for the rest of your life, bleeding in pain and agony. And then they take him and they throw him in this prison cell that's like a dungeon. And don't just think like our prisons. We're talking sewage, exposure, open wounds, sitting there uncomfortable. About midnight, the earthquake comes and they baptize the jailer and his whole household. And it's just this incredible story. But here's the deal. None of it had to happen. Paul was a Roman citizen. And in Rome in that day, as a Roman citizen, you had what's called due process, meaning the moment they were going to beat him, he could have said, hold up, I'm a Roman citizen. We're going to go through the process, the legal process. You can't touch me. And they wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have touched him. In fact, when they find out he was a Roman citizen, they're all over themselves apologizing. 
You see, he could have played that card, but why didn't he? Because he looks over and he sees a bunch of people who he's been trying to tell that their citizenship in heaven is more important than their citizenship to Rome. A bunch of people who needed somebody to show them how to live for Jesus when it wasn't to their advantage. And he took a beating that almost killed him for them. So now he writes this letter that we call Philippians. And the words resonating with the people who watched him live hit different. Philippians chapter 2, he writes this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Think about the weight of those words after they watched him take that beating. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even cross death. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our call. Have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Put the interests of other people over and above your own self-sacrificial love. I love the way Max Lucado describes this coming of Jesus for our sake. I'm going to read to you. I didn't get it to them in time to put it on the screen, so you're just going to have to follow with me. In his book, He Chose the Nails, he writes this. He said, you want to know the coolest thing about his coming, about the coming of Jesus? Not that the one who played marbles with the stars gave it up to play marbles with marbles. Or that the one who hung the galaxies gave it up to hang door jams to the displeasure of a cranky client who wanted everything yesterday but couldn't pay for anything until tomorrow. Not that he, in an instant, went from needing nothing to needing air, food, a tub of hot water and salts for his tired feet. And more than anything, needing somebody, anybody, who was more concerned with their, where they would spend eternity rather than where they'd spend their paycheck on Friday. Not that he kept his cool while the dozen best friends he ever had felt the heat and got out of the kitchen. Or that he gave no command to the angels who begged, just give the nod, Lord, one word, and these demons will be deviled eggs. Not even that after three days in a dark hole, he stepped into the Easter sunrise with a smile and a swagger and a question for lowly Lucifer. Is that your best punch? That was cool. That was incredibly cool. But what you want to know what the coolest thing about the one who gave up the crown of heaven for the crown of thorns? He did it for you just for you. That's the only way we overcome our two problems. The cultural current that's pushing us towards selfishness and the heart that wants nothing more than to add to our project self-improvement is to look at Jesus who gave up all of that for you. And here's what I've learned in my ministry, in my time following Jesus. You can't fake that. It's there or it's not. God can't bless who you pretend to be. He can't bless who you're pretending to be. But he wants to bless who you really are and use your life for the benefit of other people. Let me close out this way. Ted Engstrom, is, uh, he's confined to a wheelchair. He wrote a letter to his son trying to explain the gratitude, the deep gratitude he had for his wife. And so he used their date nights as a way to illustrate that for his son. And here's what he wrote to his son. Son, a date night means that your mom has to dress me 
shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and into the garage, take the pedals off my chair, stand me up, then turn me around, sit me down in the seat, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the trunk, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, then get out of the car and close the garage door, get back into the car and drive to the restaurant. Then she gets me out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, takes the pedals off of the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit there and we have dinner, which means that she feeds me one bite at a time through the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes me out to the car again, and reverses the same tedious routine. When it's all over and finished, and we're back inside the house, she'll look over at me and she'll say, Honey, thanks for taking me out to dinner. And I never know quite what to say. It's perspective. Others first. It's that simple. We're up against a current from our culture and a current in our own heart. God can't bless who you pretend to be. So the question is simple. Will you or won't you have the mind that was in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us to live in a way that you lived first. You went before us, and you modeled this for us, your self-sacrificial love, your deep care for us, your concern for us. And I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his writing and the reminder that we need to get our hearts to a place where we are deeply concerned for the interests of other people over and above our own. We don't deserve your kindness, your patience, and your grace, but man, are we grateful for it. So God, we ask you this next week, through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, would you help us to keep our eyes out, our ears open to the needs of the people around us, that when we see a need, we meet a need. And through the discipline of self-denial, would you put a deep joy in our hearts for the interests of other people, all for your sake, for your glory, and for your kingdom. We ask for this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.